Welcome to season two of An Unexpected Launch, a podcast sharing stories of people thriving after an unexpected circumstance. I'm continually amazed by the stories of those who don't give up, who use a challenging life event to propel themselves forward, those who find unexpected gifts of beauty and grace along their journey, and who use those gifts to change the world around them. Kelly is a mom, an author, the owner of an award-winning real estate company, and the executive producer and CEO of Eris Sisters, an organization committed to creating opportunities for women. Ten years ago, Kelly was struck by a debilitating illness that required her to be placed in a medically induced coma. Just one day after being moved out of the ICU, her husband asked for a divorce and left Kelly to raise their three-year-old son. Kelly had to battle back, learning again to walk, and talk and perform activities that many of us take for granted. She's not only recovered, she's running a thriving business supporting women entrepreneurs. Kelly, welcome to an unexpected launch. Thank you for having me. So Kelly, before your business, you were running a successful real estate business and you and those who worked for you would describe your approach to business as intense, driven, and hyper-focused. Tell us about that, Kelly. So, you know, it's kind of the Kelly before I got sick and the Kelly after um, I had been in the coma. But before I got sick, um, my business was my life. I loved, loved, loved what we got to do. And we built this team that was um, all female leaders at the time that were so amazing. And everybody kind of had their own lane. And one of the one of the beauties of building a company where um, everybody truly believes that they should stay in their own lane is you're able to really deliver service and products at a much higher level. And so I would literally go home every day and just think about how we could um, get continue to get better and how we could continue to serve the people that were in our company at the highest level, and then our clients as well, and what that looked like. And it was morning, noon, and night. I loved it. And, you know, people either loved me or they hated me because they just could not understand why all I wanted to talk about was my business. So um, it was it was very rewarding. And it was also, I was very one-dimensional at that point in my life. Um, I was in my 30s and... Um, I came from a very entrepreneurial family that had built a a very large business and had sold that at the end and then retired very, very comfortably. So I had this great model that I had to follow. And um, and then, you know, the unexpected happens sometimes. And that's what happened. So speaking of unexpected, uh, you you did suffer this debilitating illness. Tell us a little bit about what happened. So I came home one night and, um, oh, my husband was aggravated with me because of course I was late and we sat down, we ate, um, at the time we had help in the house. And so dinner was, you know, there and they were waiting for me. And so I ate dinner and after dinner, I just said to him, I was like, gosh, it's weird. I feel really ill. And he was like, what? And I had, I'm not somebody who really ever gets sick. And I've never been in a hospital before, all those types of, I mean, little bits here and there, but nothing certainly major. So, um, so he said, well, why don't you take some Advil and go to bed and let's see how you feel tomorrow. I was like, okay. And so I took some Advil and I woke up, oh, it was probably like 
five o'clock in the morning. And um, I felt like, and it's a very weird feeling. Um, it felt like my head was literally like popping off my body and that my brain was almost swimming in my skull. And so I was very confused, but I knew that um, it was something major. And I had like, I, I woke him up. I said, um, we need to go to the hospital. And he was, he literally looked at me. He's like, you want me to wake up the baby? I mean, yeah, like we've got a sleeping three-year-old, like you want me to wake up the baby? Yes. Like I need to go to the hospital straight away. So we went to the hospital. Um, and I think he thought I was just kind of, I don't know. I don't know what he thought, but Nonetheless, um, I ended up being in there for about a week and they didn't really know what was going on. They kind of, they sent me home 24 hours later, I was back in the hospital again. And now I was, I was in one hospital twice. And then I went to a bigger hospital, um, that was closer into the city that was more renowned and just oddly enough, um, one of my relatives runs the, um, Oh, the neurology department at that hospital. So my parents had flown in from Los Angeles. They live out there. And um, so we went to that hospital. They couldn't sort it out. Um, and so they sent me to the teaching hospital, which is called Barnes. Um, and it's tied into Washington University. Anyway, so um, they put me in a medically induced coma. My organs were shutting down and they couldn't figure out why or what was happening. All my levels were off, like potassium and sodium and all of that kind of stuff. And um, they pretty much um, kept me in a coma until my organs started to, I guess, I don't know how they regulate or whatever, but they started to regulate. And um, I, so I came out of the coma and um, literally like, oh, I was out of the coma for a few days. And my sister, who was at that point like eight months pregnant, they wouldn't let her come down. So my mom ran up to Chicago to just, you know, say hi pretty much. And um, just for the night, because my sister, I think, was feeling very disconnected. And um, my dad ran home to check on the dogs in California. They had two dogs. And so um, I was alone for one night. And my husband walked in and said, hey, I, things are going to change. I want a divorce. And I was like, oh, and when you come out of a coma, I wish I could explain what that feeling is. You're totally on the moon. Well, at least my experience. I didn't see anything. I didn't, all of that stuff. But when you come out of it, you're just like, oh, you're literally just woo, kind of floating in the clouds. And I was really happy to be out of the coma because I was so lonely in the coma, which is a weird, especially with all of the stuff going on right now. And there's so many sick people. Um that to have those experiences where people are alone, um, you know, it, while they're so sick, it's, yeah, it's gives a lot of perspective. So at any rate, um, I, you know, was, I called my mom who, or I called my sister because my mom had an LA number and I called my sister and I said, um, Brian's leaving. She's like, Oh, hold on. Let me get mom. And so my mom got on the phone. She's like, Oh honey, He's, he would never do that. Like, like, you know, my mom lives in Mayberry Place sometimes. And so she was like, he wouldn't do that. I was like, no, he really came here. And he said that she was like, you must be hallucinating. Mm. So she comes back the next day and, um, and she's like, well, 
I guess you're not hallucinating, pretty much. (laughs) So, and that was, I couldn't walk at that time. Um, The feeding tube had just come out. Like, when I'm telling you I was at, like, the bottom of the barrel, I was at the bottom of the barrel. So, timing certainly wasn't the best. And, um, you know, but you learn to fight through some of that. So, and that's what I did. And so, again, like, I was kind of on the moon, which was probably a really good time to do it, actually, because it didn't really stressed me out that badly. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, but it just didn't. So were you ever, di- did they ever diagnose you? Do you know what it was that, that you had? No, they could never really sort it. And, um, you know, I, they called it a virus after, mm-hmm. after everything because they couldn't sort it out. There were certainly other um, ideas of what it could have been. They tested me for, I mean, everything from, um, you know, just uh, everything that, yeah, I don't even know all the diseases that they test you for. And a lot of that stuff went to Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, too, is once um, once your symptoms kind of subside, like there's no way to go back and recapture that time. So some of the things that they wanted to test me for later on, they weren't able to do because of, you know, everything. So, um, but there was definitely... Um, you know, some interesting theories about what it was. And at the end of the day, they called it a virus. So without really a definitive diagnosis, do you worry that this could happen again? Is that something you think about? Um, No, I don't really, because I feel like um, if it was going to happen again, it would have happened by now. So, you know, and I certainly have some medical stuff here and there, but if that was going to, if, there was something that was going to happen. I, I think I would have known by now and 10 years have, have passed. So mm-hmm. I'm really, really, really lucky because what it did um, was it gave me a great opportunity to really find what I love and who I love and who I don't love. And um, one of my, one of my friends from my twenties um, kind of came back into my life and he was Australian and he literally would call and be like, Hey, coming to Australia. And I'm like, I can't go to Australia. And he'd be like, and, uh, and I'd be like, I can't, he'd be like, yeah. And I'd get on a plane like three weeks later and I was in Australia and that happened with places all over the, all over the country and certainly in the U S but also, um, in London and in Australia. So I really learned how to balance, um, how to really have a lot of fun because everybody should be having fun in addition to all the other stuff that they do. And, for me, I'm so intense when I'm working that it's very tricky for me to be like, oh, I'm going to peace out at three o'clock today and balance my life that way. Although I've learned to do that over time. I was better balancing like, okay, I'll work really hard for three weeks and then I'm going to go to Australia for a week or I'm going to go to London for a week or I'm going to go where, wherever I was going to run off to. And so that's how I found a lot of balance in my life. And um, also, you know, now my son, who at the time when I was really ill, was three, now he's 13. So it's very nice to, um, you know, be able to have some flexibility with, you know, one of the, the, probably the only perk sometimes is just having a little free time when you get divorced, um, where you really can go off and live a life that that you want to have. So... Yeah. Well, that gets a little bit to what you were talking about, the, the pre-coma and the post-coma Kelly, how yeah. how different they are. And I, I, I do think that when you're faced with a life-threatening illness or 
or a diagnosis, it really does help you set those priorities and it really highlights to you what is important, knowing that all of that could have been lost. Yeah. Well, and even in the situation that we're in currently, right? I mean, look, there are people, 17,000 people have died in the last couple of weeks. And the those folks, I, I can't even imagine what their families are going through at the moment and how horrible that is. Um, for the rest of the country who is, in theory, just feel like they're imprisoned in their own home at the moment um, and they're starting to get antsy and all of that kind of stuff and how many times am I going to paint with my kids and run outside with my kids and all of that kind of stuff. One of the things that I would say, like, I found cooking again to be really, really fun. And as a matter of fact, like, we have way too much food in our house at the moment because, like, spend my days, you know, at least cooking two or three days a week, where before we were just kind of going here and there and running, running amok a little bit. So um, I've found that there's a lot of teaching moments in like for myself, just learning myself and learning with my son and how to communicate effectively and what, you know, how do we keep stress at just the dullest roar? And, you know, a lot of that comes with laughter and a lot of that comes with watching silly stuff on TV and, um, you know, I mean, my son makes so much fun of me, like from October 31st to January 1, Hallmark runs the same crappy Christmas, funny, fun, dumb, romantic comedies. Like, and you know, like now we're watching Shit's Creek. Have you seen Shit's Creek? Yes. So it's hysterical. <laughs> so yeah, it's hysterical. So, you know, so it's just, I think that there's things that you can really do together. Um, not to mention, you know, I don't know, like my taxes are never done on time. We're always asking for extensions. All my taxes are done. My insurance stuff that I need to get done is done. All that little stuff that you hate to do, you have plenty of time to do it. And so, um, and you can just do a lot of fun stuff together. So my, long story short, and you can certainly edit any of this, but um, I think that it's finding your way back home a little bit internally, you know, like making peace within yourself, despite all the chaos that's going on currently. And I think that that's what I'm really looking for in, you know, in all the relationships that I have and all the things that you can do is if you can provide some balance for people or some knowledge for people or what's really in it for them and um, helping them get to through that day, the next day, the next half day or whatever, um, I think is really important. And I think that we just are all really learning how to be good, um, good citizens for each other at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's a transition for a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm. So this has been really unique and certainly a unique time period um, that I think that we can all really benefit from as well as, you know, all the, all the really hard stuff that's going on. And, um, you know, for all, all of those people that are on the front lines, you know, just, how grateful, you know, I don't know what to do for them right now. And that's what I'm kind of thinking, you know, like we've got to stay in, so that's okay. But what do we, like, what can we do to cheer them on? And I love hearing about, you know, everybody doing that from their rooftops and stuff. And unfortunately in lovely St. Louis, where I am at the moment, um, you know, we're all spread out. So um, that's a little, a little hard to do. It's finding that creative opportunity, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What is it? What can we, what is the, you know, I, I've seen some stuff that's really sad and some stuff that's really inspiring. 
um, one of my friends who actually is in Europe at the moment, um, she posted something uh, in the middle of the night last night that was something about um, this man that had survived. And God, don't make me teary. But this man um, got put on a ventilator, all that stuff. He, he came off of it. And um, the ER doctor that had helped him said to him, I'm going to see you on the other side of this. <laughs> anyway, so they did. It was just, it was such a lovely story, you know, that, you know, it just gives you hope of kind of what, what can happen. And, you know, certainly it goes both ways, but, um, it, and I'm not a Pollyanna, but it was really nice to see somebody actually come off the ventilator that went on it. So, you know, and it looks like, um, you know, at this point, certainly there's many tough days ahead and, um, we're starting to see some some good, not just hearing about the hard stuff. Yeah. Well, we need those stories of hope to, to keep us going. No question. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I got a little emotional about all that. No, it is. Yeah. It, it is. It's a very emotional thing. Um, so, Kelly, I want to go back a little bit. Um, so, after you are discharged from the hospital... You're, you're now home with your three-year-old son and you're healing essentially on your own. How long did it take you to start regaining your functioning? So, um, yes, I was on my own to some degree, but my parents had moved back and they were here for about a year and a half and we had full-time help and we had physical therapists there. I, I remember this physical therapist being like, hey, so we're going to get on the ground today. And I was like, who's going to get me up? Like, I literally like couldn't walk at that, you know, like, or barely like on a walker. And like, if I took eight steps that day, it was a really big day type of thing. So I remember her being, she was like, we're getting on the floor today. And I looked at her and I was like, no, we're not. She was like, yes, we are. So, and I remember just pulling myself up the chair to, you know, get that started. Um, but those are very small examples. Um, the other thing that was pretty gross, can I say something gross? Of course. Okay. So this, this is a podcast for uncomfortable conversations. So just, just okay. lay it on the line. Okay. So let me tell you, this is funny. Well, it's not funny. It, it's gross, but, um, so, as time went, it took me three years to recover pretty much. And, but as time went on, you know, like I did start to learn how to drive again because my vision had been impacted terribly during the time. And I had to wear these prism glasses that were awful to like, because when you're in a coma for a really long time, your eyes like actually, um, like if you're, it depends on, I think how you're laying, but if your eyes are stuck in the same position, I guess for a long time, like, they kind of come out on different levels. So everything is like seeing double. So you wear these prism glasses that are those big Coca-Cola glasses. I looked flipping peachy. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> anyway, but so once I could get that back, the only thing that took a really, well, one of the things that took a really long time to come back, when you have a cath, when you have catheters in, um, and first of all, just for all listeners, there are two catheters. There's not just one. Right. So all you medical people would know all that, but the common person does not know that. Anyway, so like you get a signal from your brain that says, I have to pee and you immediately pee. So like I couldn't be driving or anything like that because I literally like would be like, oh, so I finally start driving and I get to this quick trip 
and which is a gas station here. And I'm literally like, I was like, oh my God, I got to pee. And I'm literally like running into the store as I'm literally like peeing all over myself. And it's my son is laughing in the other room. Um, so, so like there's stuff like that. that's just really funny that like you can't really control. The only other thing that I would say that hasn't come back and, you know, is, is just my balance. So I can walk up a couple of steps, but I can't walk up more than three steps without a rail. So if I go and I speak somewhere, this is really funny. If I go and I speak somewhere, I don't care where I speak. I don't care how many people I speak in front of, but like the first question that I ask, it's never about money. It's all that. I'm like, is there a rail to get onto that stage? Because I can't do a big step and I would have to turn it down. And I've only had to turn down like two opportunities, but yeah, that's my biggest thing. It's like, okay, is there a railing that I can use? You know, and people are like, yeah, like, what's that all about? I'm like, just trust me. So anyway, but that's about it. Like that's, but it did take three years to recover from all of, all of that. So I'm glad that that has passed. So that is, that's a long time to be working so hard. What gave you strength to continue to push forward day after day? When you come out of, let me go back. When I came out of the coma, um, I just didn't know any better. Like, I, I don't know if that's an internal wiring. Like, so many people say that they see God and they see all these different things. And uh, from what I understand, I was as close to death as you can get without dying, pretty much. And so, I don't know. I thought, you know, I keep going back like, oh, I wish I would have seen my grandmother or my, you know. But you, I didn't see any of that so, um, yeah, so it just, um, uh, you just kind of do it. Like you just, you, you don't, you don't have the brain, like my brain capacity today is back to what it was before I was sick, but I didn't have the brain capacity at that point to understand there was even a choice. Um, I remember I was driving down my street at the time and my husband was like, we've got to get the house in the market. We've got to get the house in the market. Well, we were upside down down on our house by like a lot during that time. It was 2010. Like that was, you know, we were $70,000 upside down in that house. And I thought, Oh my God. Like, and I remember talking to my uncle and him saying like, Hey, you don't have to sell the house. And I was like, I don't, I was like, well, how am I going to make money? He was like, you have a company, you have a company that, and I was like, Oh, okay. I was like, and will they like give me money? And he was like, yeah, you own it. Like it's your company. I was like, oh. I was like, okay. So I didn't, I didn't have, didn't have the understanding yet that like I owned a company and that I had the financial means to stay in the house. And if I didn't, and what he said was, if you don't, for some reason, your mom or myself or somebody will pay until you know it all settles down. You're not gonna unload the house and pay seventy thousand dollars to get rid of the house. And I was like, okay. And literally, that was kind of the decision that was made. So I'm very, very lucky in who surrounded me. Very, very lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, it's that community that helps just to keep you going. And and I remember early on for myself, people would say to me, very similar as they did to you, well, you're you're so strong. And, and I didn't really think of it at the time. I think I was just simply trying to get through each day doing what needed to get done. And like you, I didn't, I didn't think of a different option. Um, and I think when you have children, I had um, three boys who were teenagers at the time and 
my main focus was keeping them okay. And it was through keeping my focus on keeping them okay that I was able to just go one foot in front of the other. But I didn't think of it at the time as being strong. Yeah. One thing that my mom used to always say that would keep her in the present is because people said terrible things to my mom. Like somebody at one of the hospitals said, if your daughter expires, um, what do you want? You know, they wanted her to make a decision about something. And she looked at the doctor and was like, my daughter is not going to expire. Like that's not even in the remote, but she would say, don't put shoes on imaginary feet. Mm -hmm. And that's always stuck with me because it's, you know, and I had a reminder of that the, the other day when I was flying back from Los Angeles back to St. Louis because we had to get back and she didn't want us to leave. And she was like, you're going to die on that airplane. Like nobody's flying. And I said, mom, let's not put shoes on imaginary feet. She's like, don't use (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Like, can we just take a deep breath? And luckily still here, didn't die on the plane or catch Corona. Thank goodness. Um, But, you know, it's really important especially during times of crisis to really stay in the present and not start going down the woulda shoulda coulda and sorry and uh and understand that if you just stay present that usually you can reduce anxiety and um you know, as I was talking to one of my Australian friends yesterday she said to me she was like you know we're our own healers we are the solution so when you think about that, it really comes down to is your mind going to let you live or let you live past that experience? And most of the time, you know, as long as it's age appropriate, you know, like you are going to live through that experience. You are going to be able to survive. And whether it's about money or it's about relationships or um, what have you, what I've found is, is you really, you're stronger than you think. And you would know that as well, right? Like you just don't know until you get tested absolutely yeah but the more research you do the more your fear dies and or squashes um diminishes whatever the word is that and i think that there's a lot to be said about staying just in the moment yeah i couldn't agree with you more so you mentioned uh speaking tell me how how did you get into speaking Yeah, so that's funny how that all kind of worked out. Um, One of the things that you don't have when you come out of a coma is social cues. Like, they're gone, right? So you just say stuff more. um, You're more like, you're like a little child again. You're like you're three years old, and you're saying like, hey, can I have um, this scoop of ice cream? And your mom says, no, already had two scoops of ice cream. No more ice cream. (laughs) Enough. And you just keep saying, well, can I have some ice cream? Can I have some ice cream? Can I? And all of a sudden you get ice cream because you're like, oh, shut up here. You know, like, and I think that's how my speaking career really started was I just didn't have any social cues. So one of the first things that I did that was really socially awkward was um, Barbara Corcoran, who is now on Shark Tank, but at the time had sold her real estate business for like $60 million or something beautifully insane and um uh and so I was watching her and I was like oh I want to do what she did I want to sell my company and um so um 
that was, I think, in August. So it had almost, it had been over a year that I had been home and starting to make decisions, but not totally there yet. And at that point, I had gone off my walker, but I was still on a cane. And um, and so uh, I reached out to her office and I was like, hey, how much would it cost for Barbara Corcoran to come to St. Louis? And the woman said, um, that'll be $20,000. And I was like, oh, well, I don't have $20,000. So I hang up and I send another email and I'm like, okay, well, how much would it cost for me to come to New York and meet with her there? Oh, that's five grand. Okay, I can find $5,000. So I found $5,000 and I went to New York and I brought my vice president with me because, you know, like I couldn't have done New York by myself at that point. And so I'm on a cane and we go to her office and she's amazing, absolutely positively amazing. And we start talking through like what you need to do in order to get really profitable in order to make a sale of the company, that kind of a thing. And um, so we spent the afternoon with her. She could not have been more gracious. She could not have given me better advice. She was, she is a solid shooter. I mean, I've never met anybody that says fuck more than she does, which is hilarious because you wouldn't really assume that about her. She is the most lovely human being ever. Anyway, so um, we go, we meet with her, we stay at this swanky Ritz-Carlton in New York. It was probably one of the most um, pivotal, pivotal, pivotal moments of my life because she really started to give me the out that I was looking for. And um, she's just a beautiful person. Anyway, so um, I was leaving her office and we were in the taxi and we get out of the taxi and I left my cane in the, in the taxi. And I thought, oh my God. And that's when I first started not using my cane anymore. And I just held on to um, my vice president at that point and uh, I never went back. So I never, never needed another cane after that. So it's just, it was pivotal all the way around from a medical standpoint, from a business standpoint. Um, but those are the types of moments that you capture um, in your life. You don't even realize maybe that they're happening at the time, but that was really the caveat to kind of building another life for myself. Mm-hmm. And so did that pave the way to speaking opportunities? And Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes. So. Um, so she really gave me kind of the basis of what I needed, um, in terms of working through what I needed to become a, to become a speaker. Um, and then I just started going and, you know, I wrote a book and, um, and then it was really about the book and how we could get the book out there. And so that's kind of, and then, you know, my friend from Australia, um, kind of popped back in. And so I started to get lots of opportunities, not only in the United States, but also in Australia. And um, so it just kind of started like that. And then to make money doing it, though, is very different than to not get paid because you can go speak anywhere and not get paid, um, whether it's at a rotary or a chamber or at a big event, all of that kind of stuff. And what I was, what I was realizing was there's a lot of money in this. Like Barbara Corcoran at that time was making $75,000 a speech and was also um, flying private. And I'm like, really? Like, wow. And she's like, I don't do it very often because I've upped my price so I don't have to be gone. But it 
it is, you can make a lot of money doing that if you do that well. And I think that if you've got something that's really on point to share and you can understand what's in it for my audience um, and how you then connect with the audience, that's what really, um, that's what really qualifies you to become a great speaker. And so now we help women all over the, the world actually um, become profitable public speakers and we film their speaker reels and we get them up on stages and it's really cool to see them start making a career and start making a lot of money um, by a revenue stream that we worked on with them. So that's really neat. So I think you and I really share a passion and that's providing a platform for people to tell their stories. Why do you think it's so important for us to tell our story? It is essential. It's, it is, um, it will change the way the world sees not just women, but minorities. It will change the world, um, in the regard of breaking down, um, kind of the, oh, I call it, I don't know, uh, just kind of the bullshit of I'm better than you and it's really sharing the experiences so that other people can really have a survival guide and understand how they can make it through as long as you don't make it too much about you and you make it about what the challenge is so whether it's domestic abuse whether it is um, money, whether it's relationships, what, whatever you're discussing, I think what's really important is that you're really laying out the platform for other people. Like right now, we need help with healing. I think a lot of people are feeling mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, physically sick, mentally sick. You know, how do we help each other? And certainly it's the it's the sharing of stories, though. It's the sharing of experiences and how we're able then to get that over the line for people that really need help. And it can be something so small or it can be something so big. One of my friends put a um, video up last night um, of just, not that she was super down and out, but she was just, you know, all the schools got canceled here for the rest of the year yesterday. And so there's just, it was just like another kind of like jarring of like, what, what was normal literally three weeks ago to where we are today. And um, so I just picked up the phone and I called her and she just needed to share. Like she just, and I think people need to share. So I think it's great to um, really developing a listening process that you can then help other people heal as well as show other people the way. Well, and, and you touched on something that, that I've, I've learned throughout the process of having conversations with individuals. I originally set out to share stories, as you were talking about, to provide that hope and that light and that guidance for somebody who's early on in their journey. And what I found is that while it was doing that, the feedback that I was getting from the individuals who I was speaking with and the emotional release that they didn't even know that they needed or delving into some aspect of their journey that they hadn't really thought of and didn't realize wasn't healed made me realize it's not only important to share our stories for other people, it's important to share them for ourselves. You bet. Feeling seen and heard and making sure we matter is, um, is super essential and just development is human beings and growth and you know whether you have good experiences or bad experiences or 
people are um, in good spaces or not in good spaces at the moment. Like it's just one little chapter and how do you help them, you know, succeed through that chapter? So I think we all have a story and many of us don't share our stories out of fear or shame. There's so many reasons that people are afraid to to, to open and share their story. What would you say to somebody who has a story and is just afraid to share it? You know, people are afraid to share their stories for a number of different reasons. One is they don't think that their story has enough to it. Um, one is that they're embarrassed or they're feeling a lot of shame. Um, and what I would say to those people is when you're ready, share it because what if you could literally change the world for somebody else? In addition to, that feels good. Like that gives you fulfillment in a lot of different ways. And so is, you know, like whether it's mistakes that that you make or it's the great progress that you've made in your life, it's great to share those stories because you're able to then um, be First of all, it feels good to share it. Once you shared it, you feel this burden um, released out of your body. But it also, it really can be the survival guide for others. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So you, you've mentioned a little bit about some of the work that you do. So take us through how you ultimately went on to found Eris Sisters. So, well, you know, we... Aries Sisters started out as, we're just going to go film a whole bunch of women's stories. And um, my partner and my partner in crime and all that stuff from Australia and I decided to do that together. And I was going to find the money and he was going to run the creative. And, um, you know, what, what we quickly found out after probably um, 200 meetings is it's really hard to find money to... Um, tell these stories, right? Like it's hard to find sponsors. It's hard to find money. It's, um, and I was trying to go a mile a minute because I knew that we were under a deadline for us to be working together. Um, because we both needed to live and he was in Australia and I was here and there was flights going back and forth and all that stuff. So, you know, it became very clear that finding money for that was going to be really tricky. Um, and I just didn't, I, I couldn't find enough that it would have made an impact. So um, what we ended up doing was we, you know, my mom kept saying to me, go back to what you know, go back to what you know. And I'm like, I'm never running a real estate team again. I don't want to do that. She was like, you built up one of the most successful teams in the entire country. You consulted with people constantly. Go do some consulting and see, you know, and speaking. And I was like, it takes a year to get back, on, you know, onto that, like, full on. And she was like, just go do some consulting. And so that's what I did. And I helped people um, build not only, you know, like speaking careers, but we did sizzle reels. We did um, stories on and interviewed people. And we just did a lot of very, um, very interesting stories on compelling women um, but the women, we figured the we figured out a way to make that process as inexpensive as we could, and um, and so we were able to have people pay for, to share their stories. But then they'd walk away with a piece that they could really use in their own lives. So, what's important to me about Eris Sisters is really creating opportunities for women. And 
not only doing that through consulting, but doing film and building community. And if you take those three pieces of community, film, and consulting, um, you're really able to um, put a brand together for people that might not be able to do that on their own. And that's really fun. It's so rewarding. So anyway, that's, um, that's kind of where we are at the moment. So. And tell us the meaning of the name. Eris means tapestry in French. So, you know, we really spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, you know, like, what what would be a great name for um, a cause like this? And um, building a tapestry of all different women from all over, certainly all over the U.S. and a little bit from, you know, all over the world is... Um, is really, really cool. And as this is all coming together, it's just neat to see how all these different lives and all these different people who would have never met each other are now really good friends. And we're actually talking about doing some kind of a retreat, you know, at some part, at some point, maybe in the fall. So looking forward to that. Wow. I look forward to hearing more about that. So you've, you've mentioned that you, you focus on women. Why do you focus on empowering women? You know, there's a lot of different people said to us when we were in the middle of this, like there's a lot of different ways to do this. And that's our niche market. Like I think that you see a lot of things that in your life that could have gone differently if there was different leadership involved. And so for me, I feel like we need more leaders. Here's what I will say that I'm really disappointed about. I'm really disappointed sometimes in people's ability to say what they want to do, but they can't execute because they don't have the pull through that they need. Maybe they don't have an understanding. Maybe they don't have the training. Maybe they just don't want to work that hard. Um, and all of those things, obviously everybody's own individual. Um, but we as women also need um, a voice to say, you can do it and you need to do it. And not only do you need to do it for yourself, you need to do it for your family. You need to do it for um, your workplace, you need to do it for your community. And I'm a big believer that we have more in us than we ever give ourselves credit for. So I feel like for me, it's helping women pull that out of themselves and then drive to a level that they never thought that they could exceed. And then how proud they are of themselves. That's really fulfilling. When you see somebody, just really quick, when you see somebody on stage and they first get there and, um, you know, they're going through this process and most of these women have spoke, you know, quite a bit, but they get on that stage for the first time where there's a camera that is shooting them and, you know, production team, etc. And all of a sudden they freeze and they're like, Ugh, oh, I'm not sure I can't uh, eh, eh, all that stuff. And 90 minutes later, they've nailed it. And they're like, Oh, and then they see what they've done. There is nothing more rewarding than that. And we just um, we just got out of edit somebody yesterday, um, and it came out kind of late last night. And by ten hours later, there was a thousand people that had watched that video. And this woman couldn't believe how good she was. Hmm. And it just it's so cool to see how they transfer like what they think they can do to then actually doing it and feeling like, Oh, I'm going to fail this miserably to, Oh my God, I nailed it. Like it's just the coolest thing. So that's why I do it. I love it. It's very fulfilling. Well, I encourage 
all women, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, to follow Eris Sisters on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, because you have messages that are so encouraging and hopeful and inspirational that I think that all women can can relate. And it's been fun for me to get to know you. I, I, we originally just met through me following you on Instagram. So it's been wonderful for me to to meet you and get to know you. Vice versa. Vice versa. Yeah, <laughs> it's very cool. So Kelly, where do you turn for inspiration and hope? Honestly, I turn to the women that surround me. And um, yeah, there's a lot of people that I admire, but the people that are out there at the moment that are really working hard to nail what they want to achieve in their life, that's where I get my inspiration from. And it might be delivering um, a speaker's reel or a sizzle reel or something like that. And somebody being like, okay, well, I pushed that here and I pushed that there and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And, you know, it's some of it's that. Some of it is, um, yeah, it, I, yeah, I find that those are the people that give me the most, um, the most hope and the most um, fulfillment because, you know, when you get to be just one little mustard seed of somebody's journey, um, it, it's really, it's really cool. So I yeah. love that. Yeah. So you've had quite a journey as we've walked through today. What would you say some of, of the biggest gifts are that you, you've realized through your journey? You know, um, a lot of people say they're very grateful, and I'm certainly very grateful as well. I would also say, though, that um, one of the gifts that I've really learned is how to listen and patience. <laughs> Lots of patience. Um, and patience with myself, patience with others. But I think that if you can develop listening skills um, differently than what you currently have, um, and then take a little time to process what people are saying, then the outcomes and the results of that are really interesting and can really change a trajectory that maybe one person has. I also, um, I also spent time pre-getting sick of thinking that I was the smartest person in the room. And what I realized... Um, like literally having to sit and listen for three years, um, listen to my leaders make the decisions. And I was just kind of sitting there like not a bump on a log, but just, you know, trying to process through because it takes a long time for everything to reconnect that you just learn that if you're just a part of the group versus the leader and always having to, I still always had to make the final decision but if you really take into account what the others are saying in the room, that that's probably the biggest, that collaboration piece is probably the biggest gift. Mm -hmm. What would you, what, what is your greatest hope? My greatest hope is that we as people can feel fulfilled and that shame can go away. That, you know, there was a lot of embarrassment when I came out of, like the understanding of, you know, that I'm drooling all over myself and tinkling all over myself and 
But there's a lack of embarrassment around and shame around divorce and what that does to family and um, how you kind of put yourself back together and rebuild your your world. And so there was a lot of shame for me that came with that and those decision-making skills and how was I going to live and survive and what did that look like and all that kind of stuff. So I would tell you that the greatest gift is really um, – sharing your story and having other people share their stories where they just, they can unload that. I love that. Kelly, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like our listeners to know? Uh, just what I would tell you is share your story and whether you do it with us or you just do it with you or you do it with somebody else, it doesn't matter. Just help yourself by sharing your story. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> cool. Kelly, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I really appreciate you opening up and sharing your story with me here today. And um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Unexpected Launch podcast. Thank you to Duncan Music Project, who produced this episode and composed the music.